Please take your Bible and find James 4. Two weeks ago, already, we covered the first five commands under the third main point of this series, which I've called How to Solve Problems in Church, which is the third step in the problem-solving process. Implement the solution to the problem, which is to obey God. We firmly established that the cause of the problem, or rather the cause of every problem under the sun, found in verses 1 to 3, is sin, right? The sin which is ever-present in us, the sin that which reigns in our earthly members. And then we learned the consequence to every problem is separation from God, verses 4 to 6. Separation not in a salvific sense, but separation in a personal fellowship sense. And then two weeks ago, we began to consider the solution to the problem, which is always to repent and to humbly submit yourself to God. We learned that we needed to rank ourselves under his command as a soldier would rank himself under the authority of his command officer. And the truth found in James 4, 7 to 10, reveals another five commands. There is a list, not an exhaustive list, but a militaristic list of divine orders that we all need to follow, especially if we're going to solve problems as Christians ought to. Now, I want to Hammer this home. The solution to every problem in your life, in a relational sense, is going to be submit to God. If we would all just submit to God, then our problems would vanish and our problems would begin to lessen. But whenever there are problems, there is sin to be detected and the response To sin is to repent and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, consider this message a preparation. A preparation to handle problems and conflict biblically with godly wisdom. Because they will come again. And I say again because some have already come. There have been problems in this church in the past. It's no secret. Some problems have no doubt been handled wisely. And some, no doubt, have not been handled wisely. And they were not handled wisely because those involved did not submit to James 4, 1 to 10. But I know you all here today want to solve problems rightly when they come, right? (laughs) You all want to please your master because you love him. And because you love him, you want to obey him. So with that said, let's open our ears to the remaining five commands that are listed in James 4, 9, and 10. So that the separated sinner may be reconciled to God. The sixth command. Let's read the first these ten verses again to get our minds in the right direction. James 4, and let's read verses 1 to 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have... Because you do not ask. You ask and do not have because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So today we pick up in verse 9. At the beginning of verse 9 is the sixth commandment that the separated sinner must obey in order to be reconciled to God in personal fellowship. It says, be miserable. Not exactly what you wanted to hear this morning at church, did you? But the Bible says it, so we have to be confronted with it. Verse six, verse, uh, excuse me, verse nine. It says, "Be miserable." Now, this command and the rest, and the and the the next four commands are probably perplexing, in a sense, because they're unheard of. We always hear about how people should love one another, and we should. We always hear about how we should be gentle, and we should. We always hear about how Christians ought not to judge, and we shouldn't, hypocritically. We always hear about you must do this or do that. But when was the last time you heard a preacher or another believer say, God wants you to be miserable? And as I kind of alluded to already, I know it's not the most comforting thing to be taught. I understand that, but because I love God more than anyone... I must tell you the truth, and because I hope you love God more than anyone, you need to hear it. And here it is. It's God's will for sinners to be miserable. To be miserable over what, though? Over sin. He commands it. So it's his will. Now look at the text again. Be miserable. It's used only here in the New Testament, and it means to endure affliction or to be in distress. Now, what would James's flock have to be distressed about? Well, simply, it's their sin. Their sin that has separated them from God, verse 4. And if there's a legitimate reason to be distressed, wouldn't you say it's knowing that your sin has separated you from a loving father? Now, to give a more vivid picture of this, we can go to Jesus in Matthew 26 and see the kind of distress that he experienced when he realized he was going to be separated from his father. In Matthew 26, we read about the account of the garden in Gethsemane before his arrest. Matthew 26, verse 36 says, Then when Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began, and he, and be, and began to be grieved and... Distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And then you remember the disciples were too weak, physically and spiritually. They could not stay awake. They fell asleep a couple times. Jesus comes back and rebukes them. And then verse 39, as he fell on his face, he prayed. He said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then Luke's account says that he was in agony, praying fervently, and then his sweat became like drops of blood. Now, what would cause Jesus to be distressed to the point of death and to the point of sweating blood. You ever thought about that? Well, it wasn't his fear of being physically tortured. 
It wasn't his fear of being executed among common criminals. Because he knew he was going to be resurrected. He was so distressed because he was anticipating being forsaken by God. And that was all that he could bear in his humanity. So friends, understand that all the physical suffering in the world pales into comparison to experiencing separation from God the way Jesus did. So when a professing believer is in sin and he reads James 4.4, the right response is to be miserable. To be distressed like Jesus was before he was handed over as the Lamb of God. Remember on the cross, he said, why have you forsaken me? His demeanor displayed misery, knowing that he was about to experience for the first and only time abandonment from God the Father. And so it's appropriate for sinners to be in misery and to show in their demeanor when he or she realizes that her sin or his sin has separated them and made them an enemy of God. That's what Jesus is getting at here. The seventh commandment for the separated sinner to obey so that he or she may be reconciled to God is to mourn. Be miserable and then mourn. Verse 9 again. The Greek word to mourn means to be sad or sorrowful or to lament. Like we lament over the death of a friend or loved one at a funeral. Now again, why does God, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of James, command the diaspora to lament? It's because of their critical spiritual condition. And if there's anything under the sun to lament over, it is the effects of sin in your life. There are at least three of them. Three effects of sin in your life that should cause you to mourn. First and foremost, chiefly, it's the fact that your sin offends the one true and holy God. That should be something to lament over. In David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he lamented over his heinous sin of adultery, deceit, and murder by crying out, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Notice that David was not preoccupied with his offense toward Bathsheba or Uriah or his people. He was first and foremost and chiefly lamenting over the fact that he had sinned against Yahweh. Knowing that as a man after God's own heart, David was deeply, deeply grieved by the reality of offending his God. So the person who does not mourn over their sin because he or she has violated God's law does not understand true godly repentance, which is a component of saving faith. It's only when you understand that we all deserve God's just wrath for breaking his, count, his law countless times do we even begin to understand and comprehend the love of Christ. Why is there so much mis? conception and abuse of the love of Christ today because people have not been taught what true repentance is true repentance involves lament and misery so understand this your sin your very own sin was what made it absolutely necessary for God's only son to be born and die an agonizing, humiliating death on a cross as payment. Your sin. Take ownership of that. We just sang the hymn, the wonderful hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It was my sin who put him there, right? You know, we love to talk about the personal affection and care that God has for us. We love that. God loves me. God has forgiven me. God wants to have a relationship with me. 
And that's great, and that's true, but guess what? It was also my sin that killed Jesus. And it was your sin who killed Jesus. Take ownership of that as well. Because someone had to die for your sin. Someone had to die. It either was going to be you or it was going to be Christ. Either the sinner will spend eternity paying for his sins or Christ has already paid for it. And if by God's amazing, incomprehensible grace, Christ will have paid for your sin, that will cause you to throw yourself down before his throne with a sorrowful heart and grip his blood-stained feet and say in your heart, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner, forgive me. Forgive me for my idolatry, my pride, my greed, my jealousy, my bitterness. God, save me from the wrath to come. Now, if you want a sinner's prayer, there's a biblical one for you. Nowhere in the Bible at any time does it command hardened sinners to, quote-unquote, accept Christ into their heart. Rather, it explicitly says, repent and believe. And then James comes along and says, be miserable and mourn over your sin. This is nothing new. This is not new theology. Isaiah 66 says, these are the ones I look on with grace. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. David again wrote in Psalm 51, verse 17, that sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. In other words, God is not interested in external acts of piety, and especially ritual, dead ritual, if there is no broken and contrite heart. David says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So first and foremost... Your sin offends God and not something to mourn over. Secondly, your sin normally has an adverse effect on other people. And that's something to lament over. For example, a professing Christian woman who is unfaithful to her husband not only disrupts the life of her husband and kids drastically and dramatically, but she also shames her parents and she brings reproach upon her church. One of my friends told me about a counseling situation that he had with a woman caught in an extramarital affair. And as he sat in his office behind a closed door, after this woman uh, requested a meeting because it had become public, the affair, he sat across the table and he lovingly admonished her to repent to be reconciled to God and her family. And upon hearing this wise counsel, this woman began to break down. And she started to weep profusely. And upon witnessing this reaction, my friend, who was her pastor at the time, felt joyful. He felt joyful because he was beginning to think that God was breaking her and giving her the gift of true repentance. What does Scripture say? When one sinner repents, there is joy in heaven, right? But what came out of her mouth revealed that she was not experiencing true, authentic, contrite repentance. Why? Because all she could express was sadness about what she would lose. She was lamenting over the fact that she would lose her home. She was lamenting over the fact that she was going to lose the marriage that she had invested in. She was going to lose the protection of her husband. 
She was going to lose the respect of her church friends and her community. Most of all, she was going to lose her pride. To put it another way, she was consumed with her worldly treasures and she could not bear the thought of having to forfeit it all. So she wept for that. If she had been lamenting for the right reason, if there would have been true repentance, she would have realized that she offended God. And she would have realized that she needed to restore the broken relationship with her husband, her family, and her church. Now listen. When you sin against someone, and you do, and you will again, and if it doesn't make you sad that somehow your actions have had an adverse effect on someone, then like this woman, you fail to understand godly repentance. Again, which is a mark of a regenerate believer. The third effect of sin that we should all lament over is that your sin causes your sanctification to become stagnant. Boy, this is the most prevalent one. I continually witness Christians boast about being saved for decades. And they could care less than one iota about these things. Here's how you know that you're becoming stagnant or you are stagnant. You don't care about learning or deepening your knowledge of God. And you're content with where you're at. These are the people who say that I don't need to study doctrine and theology. I've been a Christian for so long and I just need a break from that. I know enough. There's no point in studying it. If you've thought that way, your sanctification has become stagnant. Secondly, you know that you're in a spiritual slumber if you don't serve the local church. The scripture commands us to employ our spiritual gift for the edification of the, of the church. These are the people that say, I deserve a break from ministry because I've served so many years. Been there, done that. It's time to get in my RV and go play golf for the rest of my life. You know what? In the church, there's no such thing as retirement. Thirdly, you know that you are in a spiritual slumber, in a state of spiritual stagnation, if you don't fellowship with other Christians. Especially Christians in your local church. Now these are the people that dreadfully eisegete Matthew 18.20. To eisegete means to read into the text that which the original author did not intend. How many times have you heard someone Give this defense for skipping out on church, okay? For where two or three have gathered together my name, I am there in your midst. But guess what, brothers and sisters? I don't care if you believe that. I'm going to tell you the truth right now. That does not mean that you are allowed to go off in the mountains with two or three friends, have a Bible study, and say, okay, that's my church. That's wrong. That's sin. The context of that verse is in the context of two Christians going to an unrepentant sinner, and Christ promises that his spirit will be among the confrontation. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. So do not use that verse anymore as a justification to have a Bible study or any small group clicky meeting. It has nothing to do with that. So they say, appealing to that eisegetical interpretation, I don't need the local church. I don't need elders to teach me. I can just have a small group time and a devotional time and just connect with people I really like. If that's the way you think or you have thought that way, you have experienced or are experiencing spiritual stagnation. Fourthly, You know that you are in a spiritual slumber if you don't want or don't seek out accountability. These are the people that isolate themselves for petty, immature reasons and say, I'm sick and tired of people 
have any concern with how I live my life. No one can judge me but God. Now, as a side note, how many of you have heard that before? Nobody can judge me but God. Well, here's how to respond to that. That should terrify you. The judgment of God should terrify you. I'm not making this up. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the one in sin that says, let God be my judge, does not know what they're saying. A sinner in rebellion would be well served to learn that verse. So if one or all, I could, I could go on, but for the sake of time, I have to keep going. If one or all of those things apply to you, it's because your sanctification has become stagnant. And I submit to you, it's because you have not lamented over your sin. Not only should you yourself lament over your sin because it offends God, it has an adverse effect on others, and it stunts your spiritual growth, but I have to make one more point here. Guess who else distressingly mourns over your sin? Your spiritual leaders. Your pastors, your elders, your mentors, your teachers. They all mourn over your sin. The Apostle Paul, who was a shepherd to many, used the same word James used in Corinthians, first Corinthians, excuse me, second Corinthians twelve twenty one in the context of mourning over believers' unrepentant sin. Listen to this. He said, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may, may, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So this is a pastoral warning to the Corinthians. That if they were still living in unrepentant sin, should he visit again, he would be crushed and anguished. And so, to make it a little bit applicable to us, you may not always see this or hear this. But pastors, including myself, feel the weight of the sheep's sin. It deeply grieves me when somebody gossips. It greatly saddens me when someone does not serve. And it intensely distresses me when people drift away. So realize that your sin needs to be mourned over. James commanded it. And it's not only an option. It's not an option, excuse me. It's not a request. It is a command. God wants you to be sad and sorrowful over your sin. Now back to verse 9, the eighth commandment. For the separated sinner to obey so that he or she may be reconciled to God is to weep. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Are you encouraged yet? Literally, this word means to wail. Implying not only tears, but a loud external expression of grief. There's another Greek word that's unfortunately translated as weep also, when it should be rendered as shedding a tear. Like in John 11.35, where it says Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. There Jesus did not express loud external grief. He merely shed a tear. Here... James is calling sinners to respond to their personal sin in the same way we see Peter respond to sin in Matthew 26. When he publicly denied his Messiah three times. You remember that Peter disowned his Lord because he was afraid. He remembered that Jesus told him that he would do just that. 
But Peter didn't believe it when Jesus told him that, did he? But it came truth. It came, became true. The text says in Matthew 26, verse 75, that he went out and wept bitterly. Now, notice that Peter's response to this disowning of Jesus wasn't, well, Jesus still loves me. He always forgives me. I shouldn't feel too bad about myself and risk lowering my self-esteem. When he realized his sin, what did he do? He didn't just feel bad for a few seconds. He went out and he wailed. Loudly. Bitterly. And you know what that reveals about Peter? He was truly repentant. His repentance was real. And you say, how do you know that? Well, because number one, as you can simply observe, he went from being a terrified wimp who cowered under the interrogation of a girl. Read, read, read Matthew 26. He went from that to being an inflamed, zealous evangelist who stood before men and said, Repent! This Jesus, whom you crucified and nailed to a cross, he's the Messiah. Explain that, apart from a miraculous conversion. He went from willingly dissociate himself from the cross of Christ to being one of the true foundation stones of the church of Jesus Christ. Secondly, this might not be a well-known fact, but another reason why we know his repentance was real was because he never denied Christ again. And we know this because church tradition informs us that he became a martyr. You know how he was killed? He was crucified on an inverted cross. Upside down. And he requested to be killed this way because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner that Christ did. I've never heard of a greater example of humility than that. His repentance began with weeping loudly over his sin. And that was appropriate. And it's also appropriate for you to show external grief over your sin. Knowing that sin makes you an enemy of God and a friend of the world. And isn't that not the saddest thing to ponder? Being an enemy of God. Now, there's more in the Bible about this kind of weeping. Jesus wept in this way when he looked over Jerusalem because he knew that they were going to be sacked by the Romans 40 years later. He also knew that they were not going to be redeemed. So Jesus wailed loudly as he peered over Jerusalem. But there's more we could say about this and more I could show you from Scripture, but I trust you get the picture. So I'll wrap this up with a helpful quote from this commentator. He says, Biblical writers suggest that all persons will inevitably mourn their spiritual state. They can wait to mourn until it's too late when God has brought his judgment on earth, or they can mourn now. Turning sorrowfully, from their sin, so that they will have no occasion to mourn when the Lord returns. And so what I just read here agrees with the words of Jesus. Jesus himself said, blessed or happy are they who mourn. Present tense. For they shall be comforted. Future tense. So it's the opposite, isn't it? Laugh now, mourn later. 
Mourn now, laugh later. If sinners are going to be reconciled and restored with God, there must be mourning. The ninth commandment for the separated sinner to obey so that he or she may be reconciled to God is, end of verse 9. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, James is not intending to denote the idea of laughing at a funny joke or laughing because you're happy or laughing because you're joyful about knowing Christ. Again, the context of this passage is not talking about an obedient, faithful believer. It's talking about a professing believer caught in the grip of some very serious sin. So laughter here in this context refers to the person who scorns the idea of right living. The person who is foolishly living the hedonist philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? We die. To put it another way, James is referring to the happy-go-lucky mindset that ignores the terrifying reality of God's judgment. Needless to say, it's no laughing matter, wouldn't you say? Is the judgment of God a laughing matter? But there are men and women who do laugh at it. Have you ever met those kind of people on the street? I have. There's nothing at all humorous about the consequences of sin. And the ones who are idiotic enough to view sin as funny need to listen to James. And stop laughing before it's too late. Jesus warned the hedonist in Luke 6.25 by preaching, declaring, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So that's the laughing that James is trying to squelch here. It's the mocking laugh at the judgment of God. Those who revel in this sin, as James goes on to say, needs to turn their joy into mourning and gloom. Now, I won't say more about mourning because I've covered that already, but I want to touch briefly on gloom. Again, just as we don't encourage one another to be miserable over our sin, we likewise never hear Christians being admonished to have gloom. But a lot of Christians need to have some gloom. Gloom is synonymous with dejection or disheartening. And what should Christians feel dejected or disheartened about? Sin. The opposite of flippant laughter as one indulges in sin is dejection as one repents from sin. And now you're probably thinking, this command for sinning Christians to set aside joy and have gloom might sound strange in light of Paul's more popular command, rejoice in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, first of all, it should go without saying, but this is not a contradiction. We believe in Analogia Scriptura, which is the Scripture interprets Scripture. We believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, which means that Scripture is clear. It's not confusing. So how do we handle the command to rejoice and the command to have gloom? Well, again, remember the context. The joy that Paul speaks of to the Philippians is the joy that comes when we experience forgiveness of sin in Christ. The joy that James warns us about is the fleeting superficial joy that comes when we saturate ourselves in sin. So look, I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit, sin can seem fun. And it can be, if you love the world. Sin is only fun when you love the world. 
if you hate the world as John commands us in First John, you will hate sin. But if you love the world, you will love sin and you'll think it's fun. There was a time in my life when I really cherished the world and its pleasures and hated God and his truth. And guess what? So did you. It doesn't matter if you lived in an immoral lifestyle and quote-unquote sold your wild oats. Or you grew up in a strict Christian household and never even uttered a profane word. We all went astray. We all hated God. We were all born into this world. needed to be born again. Because of our spiritual blindness, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, we naturally oppose the light of the gospel. Genesis 6 reveals that the thought, every thought and every intention of our hearts are only evil continually. And of course, Jeremiah 17 says that our heart is desperately wicked. 1 John 4.19 tells us that there was a time that you didn't love Christ. Because he says he loved us first. That means there was a time we didn't love him. And if we didn't love him, who did we love? The prince of this world. But that changed, didn't it? I hope. That change when you were justified. And, you know, before I go on, if that what I just said didn't make sense to you, then you have to ask yourself if you have been saved. If you don't understand that all people have gone astray and naturally opposed the gospel. If you are too prideful to admit that you in your natural state did not love God then you probably do not know Christ. But when you're justified, when you're declared righteous, because through faith, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness, all that changes. We go from being God's enemy to His friend. We go from being a child of Satan to a child of the one true king. We go from being a hedonist to a holy Christian. Doesn't mean that all temptation goes away, but it does mean that your joy is no longer living in the flesh. Your joy is in the Lord, and that's why you can sing with a clear conscience. My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me and paid the price for all my sin at Calvary. Now, if that makes you laugh, that's great. But if that doesn't make you laugh with joy, and the world does then this whole series is for you. You have a sin problem. The consequence of that sin is separation from God, and the solution is to obey, submit to God, repent. Now, the tenth and final commandment, for the separated sinners who obey, so you may be reconciled to God, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Humble yourselves. This is the summation of everything James wrote in the previous verses. The whole passage, the whole section of obeying God can be summed up in one word, humility. To be humble is to make yourself low. To lower yourself before God. To be humble is to voluntarily put yourself down in the sight of the Lord, being conscious of his presence, conscious that he is watching, conscious that he is infinitely holy and is the sovereign 
majestic king. Now, that's not a common thought when you think of humility. Humility is just more than not thinking yourself too important. Humility is lowering yourself. Think of a peasant bowing and kneeling to the ground before a royal crown. We've seen that in movies. We've seen that in stories. Now, what does that act of kneeling and bowing down signify? It signifies humility as he literally lowers himself beneath his superior, recognizing that he is above himself. Now, that's how we ought to view ourselves in relation to God. Not as a mean tyrant, but as the gracious and merciful creator who cared enough to save us from our sins. And if we humble ourselves, there's something to gain. And we get to conclude this series on a positive note. Look at those five little words at the end of verse 10. And he will exalt you. That's good news. But before you get to that, you have to make your way through verses 1 to 9. He will exalt you. In other words, he will lift you up. You say, lift you up to what and where? Well, you will be lifted up to sanctification and ultimately to glorification. Which brings us where? Ephesians 1, verse 3, helps us interpret this. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So we understand that God will lift us where he is, in the heavenlies to his dominion, to his dwelling place, to the pure and holy spiritual sphere. But the condition is straightforward, isn't it? If you want to be lifted up where Christ is, you must heed the commands in James 4, verses 7 to 10. And so as we close this series on how to serve problems in church, let's take a step back for a moment and observe where we began and where we've arrived. We started out with some pretty nasty sin, right? Verses 1 to 3. Murdering. Fighting, quarreling. The problem was sin. The sin was induced by the human heart. That led us to the consequence of the problem. Verses 4 to 6 explicitly states very clearly that sin separates us from God, makes us his enemy. Then we've ended with a solution to the problems. Verses 7 to 10 summed up is to obey God. Obedience to God with the right motive must have the opposite mindset of human pride, which is godly humility. And so it's fitting to end with that in mind. If you cannot memorize or remember all of, verse of James 4, 1 to 10, just remember this. Humble yourself. If you keep yourself low, then you can always go back to the scripture and relearn it. If you keep yourself low before God, bowing down to his 
authority and kingship. You can go back to Scripture and be reminded of this, what we could call a three-step process to solving problems. Whenever there's a problem, identify the cause. And the answer is always the same. It's sin. Then you accept the consequence of the problem, which is separation from God. Once you've accepted it, then you can move on to the implementation. Solution to separation from God induced by sin is to obey him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this text. I know it's hard to hear. I know that by nature we do not want to be reminded of this weightiness. I know many would much rather prefer to hear lighter and more encouraging messages, but as we are bound by your word and bound by what you've called us to do, we find ourselves confronted with this text. Father, if there are any here today who are not saved, who are wrestling with their salvation and not assured of their salvation, if there are any here today who may be trusting in their own works, their own kindness or own charity or own church ritual to save them, Father, by your grace, please help them see their need for Christ. Christ alone is the only thing that can reconcile us to you. This is my prayer, Lord, my only prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.